The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Stocks pointing towards a higher open as investors brace for tomorrow's very closely watched inflation report. China extending lockdowns and restrictions yet again as cases for COVID spread across several economically sensitive regions in that country. Activist investor Dan Loeb changes his course and his tune over his fight with Bob Chapek and Disney. Plus, the clock is ticking on a nationwide rail strike that some estimates say could cost the U.S. economy $2 billion a day. And then later on, J.P. Morgan looking at new ways to fend off some of the fintech competition it's facing. It is Monday, September 12, 2022. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning and welcome to the show. I am Dominic Chu and for Brian Sullivan today, let's kick off this hour with a check on U.S. stock futures, which are solidly positive. You can see here the Dow is implied higher by roughly 206 points, the S&P by about 29, and the Nasdaq higher by 105. This is right near session highs for the futures market. This is all after stocks snapped a three-week losing streak last week, with all three major averages ending the week in positive territory. Now, in the bond market, we're checking on yields. They are moving, but ever so slightly to the downside. You can see the 10-year Treasury note yield just a hair below 3.3%. The two-year note yield, 3.54%. So keep an eye on that dynamic there. The 30-year long bond just a little bit above 3.44%. Watching Everything now with oil prices, given the moves that we've seen to the downside as of late, we are bucking the trend a little bit more this morning. Some some fractional gains. U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate, $87.48. That's roughly three quarters of one percent of the upside, 69 cents higher. Ice Brent crude, the world benchmark gauge, $93.71, up 87 cents, just about a one percent gain there. Nat gas prices up about one and a half percent right now in cryptocurrencies. We are seeing Bitcoin and Ether showing some relative support to the upside here. Bitcoin prices, by the way, up 3%, just about 22,256. Fractional losses for Ethereum, 1,756. But remember, Ether prices have been outperforming many parts of the crypto market ahead of that big merge on that technical side of things. So watch cryptocurrencies as well. Around the world, Europe is getting its trading day going on. They've been open for a little bit here now. And you can see green on the screen. Karen Show is standing by in our London newsroom with the early trade action in Europe. Karen. Dom, good morning. Up, up and away for European markets as we pick up on those risk-on moves that you see in the United States. It's been a very cautious trading pattern here for a number of weeks because of the energy story as Europe eyes where the supply will be coming from over winter and beyond. But we are back in the green today, parking aside some of those concerns. You can see the FTSE here in the UK up 1.2%. The Zetra DAX, one of the strongest of the bunch, more than 1.5% on the green. Strong gains of 1% across many of the markets from France to what you're seeing in Spain on the 
buybacks and across to Italy, 1.7 plus percent pop, a little bit left behind, more defensive market of Zurich in Switzerland. If you look at various sectors, you can see just how strong the components are. We've got various sectors trading up more than 2 percent, basic resources, banking names and right at the top retail names, 2.5 percent higher weakness in telecoms healthcare. Worth noting the data we just had to digest this morning, GDP out of the UK returning to growth in July, up 0.2 of a percent after a contraction in June. That's been positive for direction that you're seeing on foreign exchange markets, on sterling. Also some hawkish language from ECB policymakers suggesting that we may need to see interest rates in Europe at 2% to try and tame rising prices. So both of these trades are stronger this morning. Euro in particular, 1.5% pop. And you can see that move above 1.01. Some traders still think that this is unexplained in terms of the size of the jump. Keep in mind, still hawkish, a central bank in the US compared to the ECB. But uh, it is very strong morning session, 9 tenths on sterling. It is a period of national mourning here still. And as you look at all the airwaves and the headlines here in the UK, we're still dominated by what is taking place in Edinburgh and what is taking place at Buckingham Palace. But separate to that, the data being digested by the market. Dollar still stronger versus the Japanese yen, but weaker versus the Swissy. So we are certainly seeing a reaction at this point, a more hawkish commentary coming through from central banks and expectations that 2% may be required on the deposit rate versus 0.75 where we are currently are out on that cash rate. Back to you, Dom. All right, Karen Cho, live in London with the latest on the market action in Europe. Thank you very much. To some of this morning's top corporate stories, Silvana Hinao is here with those. Silvana, good morning. Hey, Dom. Good morning to you. Now, the White House is reportedly planning to expand export restrictions for U.S. chips bound for China. According to Reuters, the new measures are aimed at chips used in artificial intelligence tech and will be similar to restrictions issued earlier this year to the likes of KLA, LAM Research and Applied Materials. Reuters adds the new rules would also codify restrictions sent last month to NVIDIA and AMD against shipping certain AI chips to China. Assets of the insolvent crypto lender Voyager Digital are heading to the auction block today as the firm moves through the Chapter 11 bankruptcy process. According to numerous reports and Voyager's own presentations, at least 22 investors have expressed interest in bidding on its assets, results of which will be finalized later this month. And a bidding war could be good news for Voyager, its creditors and customers still locked out of their accounts, as a bidding war could fetch a higher price tag for assets and result in better recoveries. Sam Bankman-Fried's FTX and Alameda publicly disclosed a joint bid for Voyager in July, but Voyager called it a lowball offer. And billionaire activist investor Dan Loeb is backing off from his from pushing Disney to spin off ESPN, saying he has a, quote, better understanding of the product's potential for growth. In a tweet, the Third Point CEO says he looks forward to seeing how ESPN ex- executes on growth and innovation plans. Loeb first disclosed his $1 billion stake in Disney back in August and immediately announced plans to push the media giant to make a string of changes, an ESPN spinoff being one of them, Dom. All right, Sylvain Hinao with those headlines. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. it. Now to a developing story. China is implementing more restrictions over a growing COVID-19 outbreak. In recent days, officials imposed new restrictions in Beijing, limiting entry and exit from the city, aiming to minimize community transmission and spread ahead of the party congress. That's next month. Outside of Beijing, restrictions continue to tighten in places like the economically sensitive cities of Shenzhen, Chengdu. 
Concerns over outbreaks and ongoing lockdowns prompting fresh downgrades to China's economic growth outlook last week. Nomura is the latest, saying growth will slow to 2.7 percent this year from a previous estimate of 2.8 percent. Now, back on Wall Street, futures pointing towards a higher opening bell, extending gains from last week ahead of tomorrow's big August consumer price index inflation report. It's the final major economic data point ahead of the Fed's next policy decision at the end of this month. Joining me now is Ben Emmons, Medley Global Advisors, Managing Director, watches all things macro. Ben, we've seen a lot of actions on both sides of the Atlantic with regard to interest rates. Take us through your thought process as to whether or not these rate hikes will, in fact, trigger a slowdown economically big enough to cause a global recession. Good morning, Dom. Yeah, it's definitely a process of on each side of the pond that uh, central banks are front-loading their, their rate hike cycles. And so as the ECB is doing this now, and the Bank of England will follow in the next two weeks or so, you know, what you're going to see is that the dollar may start to slow down it's in, a, in its appreciation a bit. And at the same time, you're going to get somewhat more traction in stock markets as a result. So I think that's the market reaction to the tightening against this backdrop, as you describe, of there is an increasing risk of a slowdown, if not a recession, as a result of Yes, central banks tightening. And I think the fallout from the energy crisis in Europe, which as much as they set price caps on energy prices, it doesn't mean that the energy crisis itself is over. So Europe remains at the biggest risk of recession while the central bank has to tighten faster against the U.S. economy that's still on track to be relatively strong this quarter. So I take it all together. It's a mixed picture, but it's definitely a picture of slow down against tightening of central banks. And I think that process will continue. Ben, Ben, does that mean then that that investors should become more defensive with regard to how they position? Are, are, are we looking again at those typical types of industries that fare relatively better? Nobody fares well, but relatively better consumer staples, utilities, that sort of thing. Yeah, that would be one part of your portfolio, and that has been consistent this year. Staples, materials, consumer durables, they stay on track. They have steady cash flow, steady balances, as we generally say. But these are companies that are not so affected by the swings in inflation or the cyclical outlook. But I do think, though, Dom, there is some level of offense, too, uh, as we speak. One, it is actually energy, you know, that has had some downdraft recently, there continues to be significant energy demands. And I think people underestimate that, in addition that the energy companies itself continue to uh, deliver enormous amounts of cash flow. Secondly, higher rates do support financials. So that's another area, I think, of offense. So take that together, you play a bit offense with that defense against that you know, economic slowdown backdrop. In, in this scenario that, that you're talking about, that there has been a lot of positioning with regard to both protecting the downside, as well as maybe positioning for some slight upside in the market as well. Are, are you noticing anything with regard to how investors are positioned in the marketplace right now that, that suggests perhaps that maybe folks out there are a little less pessimistic about where things are headed? Yeah, the general idea is, Dom, is about that wall of worry, right? And there's some data on this that people have been buying a significant amount of put options and, you know, there's some money pulled out of equity funds and that sort of thing against a narrative that's somewhat shifting here. If the ECB is going to continue to raise rates, it's going to support the euro and somewhat weaken the dollar. And that weakness of the dollar has given a lot of relief to global markets. 
Secondly, China slowing down does produce lower inflation in China that gets exported to other countries, so to speak. I think that too is a narrative picked up as of, as of last week supporting the market. So to your point is that there's somewhat of a wall of worry out there. At the same time, the narratives are shifting to perhaps somewhat upside here. So if people hedge themselves against downside, ironically, the upside continues to come more in focus. That's what we're seeing this morning. Is the, is the U.S. the best place to be still geographically speaking? Is it the, the, the most insulated in terms of the possible downside? I wouldn't say insulated because if, if Europe falls in a recession, we will be affected by it. But the U.S. economy itself has been incredibly strong and resilient and underestimated what this reopening and all the stimulus has done, not just in 2020, 2021, but even this year. So as much as the Fed's been tightening, yes, the U.S. economy is in a, in a best shape currently, not affected as much by the Ukraine war either. So this is why the dollar has been strong, and this is why the stock market isn't really falling off a cliff here. So it is the safe haven, if you will. Ben Emmons at Medley Global. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. When we come back on the show, much more on the markets and tech's recent rally. And the four stocks my next guest says are the ones to own right now. Plus, we go live to London and the latest on Queen Elizabeth II's funeral preparations coming up for next week. And then later on, a huge victory for gun control activists and new measures from Visa, MasterCard and American Express as part of that story. Very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this break. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to the show. Check out futures right now. The Dow Industrials implied higher by roughly 200 points at the opening bell. The S&P by about 29 and the Nasdaq at 106 points higher. This does represent near the highs of the session for that futures market right now. You can see there in just the last six hours a steady climb. Just hours now from now, the public will get its first opportunity to say goodbye and thank you to Queen Elizabeth II in person after her coffin's long and historic journey through the Scottish countryside. NBC's Lindsay Reiser joins us now from London. Uh, Lindsay, good morning. What can you tell us about the procession and how the citizens of the UK are honoring the late queen? Dom, good morning. Right now is a period of mourning in the United Kingdom, but we saw as uh, that procession uh, carrying Her Majesty's coffin made its way from Balmoral Castle to Edinburgh, people waiting in line for hours just to catch a glimpse of Her Majesty's coffin. We know her daughter, Princess Anne, uh, was, was uh, riding behind uh, the car carrying Her Majesty's coffin, uh, looking rather solemn uh, uh, and uh, taking part in that procession. 
And we also know uh, that there are events scheduled to take place every single day, meticulous planning that's been in the works for decades. So Her Majesty's coffin will lie in state in Edinburgh today. It will be uh, the Scottish people's first chance to pay their respects as she lies in state. Uh, her coffin will be uh, flown from Edinburgh to London tomorrow, taken to Buckingham Palace. And we know the royal family will be joining in a gun carriage procession uh, carrying Her Majesty's coffin from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Hall, where Her Majesty will lie in state for four days before her funeral at Westminster Abbey. And, uh, Dom, I can tell you I've been on the ground for several days that the mood here is not only hopeful for a new modern monarchy, the new reign of King Charles, but also very solemn. This is the only monarch that, that many people here have, have known. She was uh, uh, in power in reign for 70 years. And so uh, talking to people, they, they feel this deeply dumb. Uh, you mentioned the mood uh, regarding the queen and her reign. Can you tell us a little bit about what it's like in terms of how people feel about King Charles III? what it will be like with his reign. Will it be a continuation of Queen Elizabeth II? Is he more of a transition-type king because of the crossroads that the U.K. sits at, both from a technological and energy perspective as well? Certainly, many people will consider this an existential moment for the monarchy. Of course, right now, uh, people say that they want to appreciate and respect this period of mourning and will deal with the cost of living crisis after that, uh, including labor strikes and the like. And, and we're seeing live pictures of, uh, right now, the motorcade carrying King Charles III as he heads to Parliament behind me uh, to address Parliament. We'll hear from him for the third time since his accession to King. And he doesn't enjoy the same popularity as his mother, but we also know that in talking to people at Buckingham Palace, people are hopeful and people want to give him a chance. And they do feel like uh, he's been preparing for this role his entire life. They do believe he'll do a good job. Not necessarily a transitionary king, but again, we have to remember how monumental this moment is for the British people and the people of the, the nation and the Commonwealth. Um, the monarchy playing a very big role in their day-to-day -day lives. The queen was incredibly beloved. And so they're really hanging on the king's words right now. They feel like he's struck the right tone so far when he has addressed the nation and the Commonwealth and, and sympathizing with people, knowing that the immense pain that they feel and the irreparable loss, but also looking ahead to the future, renewing the vow of lifelong service. And then, of course, Tom, if I may mention also, all eyes this weekend were on uh, the, the Fab Four as they're known, uh, William, Kate, uh, Harry, and Meghan, of course, the Prince and Princess of Wales, inviting the Duke and Duchess to join them on their walkabout outside Windsor Castle. Many looking at this moment as a reunion uh, in their time of mourning uh, and, and people will be watching very closely as well as we know that they will be participating and playing very large roles in some of the events to come, Dom. And, and Lindsay, before we let you go, you, you mentioned some of the kind of broad strokes with regard to timing and, and, and logistics, but, but the key date is going to be next Monday, correct? Right. And one of the key dates will be that procession on Wednesday, Dom, when we will see the royal family following behind Her Majesty's coffin going from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Hall, followed uh, preceding her lying in state, and then Monday is going to be her state funeral at Westminster Abbey. All right, Lindsay Reiser with the latest on Queen Elizabeth II. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Still on deck for the show, a closer look at energy and some pretty remarkable moves in oil prices since those highs that we saw back in June, not just for oil, but gasoline as well. Keep it right here.
life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome back. Oil prices are reversing losses from earlier today. Global demand is being overshadowed by COVID restrictions in China and the prospect of more rate hikes in the U.S. and Europe as well. China's oil demand could contract for the first time in two decades this year as the country's zero COVID policy keeps people at home and businesses shuttered. Still, crude prices could rebound by the end of the year as supplies remain tight when the EU ban on Russian oil takes effect in full, fo- in full force on December 5th. So let's talk more about all of this with Kate Richard. She's the founder and CEO of Warwick Investment Group. Kate, your firm, Warwick, made a lot of waves and some headlines last week. The Wall Street Journal reporting that you're trying to open up a new fund to invest in oil and gas. Is this the time now that you should be investing in oil and gas, given the dynamic in the macro markets? Hi, good morning. Well, I can't discuss anything related to the fund, but what I can tell you is that the macro is really interesting. And my macro partner, Dan Drum, and I wrote a piece last week about a tale of two tales, because you can really see that the asymmetric tail risk in the commodity right now is as high as we've seen. So we can make very cogent arguments that crude could go above 100 into the 120, 150 type level. And we can make very cogent arguments that it could go very you know, far south. So we can see like 40 to 50 by the end of the year. And what we said is, you know, we think you have to manage the near-term volatility. And in the context of uh, a long-term structural underinvestment, in hydrocarbons and also in other parts of the metals complex, including, you know, copper, uranium, nickel. So we're really bearing the fruits of our underinvestment over the past decade. So, so I mean, Kate, this is it's interesting only because you could argue that the last, say, six to 12 months, the world at large has realized that there is a reliance on oil and gas that cannot be just taken offline by flipping a switch and that if you try to do that, prices rise and people feel the pinch of it. What do you think governments around the world have learned with regard to the glide path or the path with which you have to transition to clean energy from oil and gas? It's not just going to take two or five years. I don't I don't know if the governments have learned it yet, but I think what we're actually seeing is that we're going to live in a dual world where there are renewables and there are hydrocarbons. And If you look at renewable investment over the first 20 years of this century, it's up 50 times, but it's still like 6% of supply. And at the same time, we see that hydrocarbon demand has been incredibly flat. Um, You know, just looking from 2009 to today, hydrocarbon demand is like, or supply as a percentage of total energy went from 81% to 79% of the mix. So we see that we're going to live in a world where there are electric vehicles and there are internal combustion engine solutions. And we need to keep that in context, because I think a lot of times when we're talking about hydrocarbons, there's a sense of schadenfreude that we've had this underinvestment, and now prices are going to be very high. And that's not the case. The case is that we're actually afraid. And when we see high prices, we know, especially in the context of a recessionary backdrop, that it will make prices fall. And the, and that will be celebrated, you know, politically, that will be celebrated in the popular news. But that does help. And while that does help solve short term inflation and ease inflation a bit, it is setting up for these hyper quick cycles that we see in oil and for oil prices going much higher. 
And, um, you know, we see like copper and oil are both down over 30% this year. But that is also setting up a longer term issue, which is the structural underinvestment. And I think that the solutions for that are probably not political. Most likely they're in the capital markets. Um, but I did want to say, I think that we should prepare going into the end of the year for very high short-term volatility. I mean, if you look at average intraday volatility for crude right now, it's like over $4 a barrel. For natural gas, it's between 50 and $0.60 cents an M. That's pretty high. And, you know, on the European side of our business, we see that just in the last two weeks, like over a, a trillion and a half of liquidity has come out of the derivatives market because it increased in margin requirements for European and natural gas producers, uh, electric and natural gas producers. So that really matters in the derivatives market. And, you know, sort of going back to the theme of the short term, maybe providing lower prices, maybe easing inflation, maybe providing an entry point to some of these stocks or some of these commodities. It's not setting up for a, a great outcome for the world. It is probably setting up for a great outcome for cash flow for producers, but it's not setting up for a great outcome, which means we do expect to see much higher oil prices. Um, and if you think about like going back to the, the margin situation in Europe, which you know we've talked a lot about in the last week, taking a trillion and a half of liquidity out of the derivatives market makes it harder to finance the upstream energy projects that you need to settle out this volatility and increase production. And on the renewable side, for things like aluminum smelters or copper smelters, taking that much liquidity out of the system also makes it very hard to finance those projects, which are critical for the energy transition. So we we see that the volatility as creating a pretty difficult macro context, which means that we probably do have upward price pressure on the commodities. My guess is after this short-term volatility sort of plays out. So, so Kate, we've just got a few moments left here. You mentioned the, the capital investment and, and, and some of the investments that you are thinking about making. Are there specific companies, types of companies that would stand to benefit, relatively speaking, more so than others with regard to the oil and gas trade? Yeah, I would say two things. One, you know, if, you, if you're a CIO that doesn't have a policy that prohibits you from investing in extractives, what energy and also natural resources on the metals and mining side are doing in portfolios is exactly what they're supposed to do. When growth is not in, when valuation matters, when there are structural supply issues, like you mentioned, the world becoming conscious of over the past year, and when there are these, there's a, an awareness of the resource dependency that we all have, then all of a sudden energy performs very well in a portfolio. And it starts to argue for the position of natural resources in these portfolios. And it's one of the best performing sectors if you talk to people in allocation over the past two years, both on public and private. So that's number one. Number two, valuation in this space is not that interesting because everything is basically within half an EBITDA turn of four times. So if you look at the super majors, they're at three and a half times EV to EBITDA. If you look at the large caps, they're at about four times so there's not a lot of variety, but in looking at allocation right now, I want to see duration of resource base. So that means over 10 years of real inventory in on the left side of the cost curve plays. I want to see a very strong balance sheet. I want to see valuation that's appropriate, and I would pick my entry moments. So for Conoco right now, they're down 10% from the high, trading at four times. have an amazing tip being permeated with the Shell plan and Concho acquisition last year. And, uh, you know, they have a 30% cash flow yield. Sure. And they're paying back 30% of all free cash flow to investors every year. That feels like a really nice place to play. And they're the second largest oil producer in the U.S. after Exxon. 
Outstanding. ConocoPhillips there, one of the big calls from Kate Richard. Thank you very much. We really, really appreciate it. Please come back. We want to hear more about the macro story as well. All right, let's get a check on this morning's top headlines outside of the markets and your money. NBC's Francis Rivera is in New York with the latest. Good morning, Francis. Hi, Dom. Good morning to you. Over the weekend, the ongoing Ukrainian counteroffensive has put Russian forces on retreat. More and more territory in the country's northeast is being liberated, Ukraine says. The Russian defense minister is denying claims of a retreat, instead saying they are redeploying forces to the east. Ukraine is now accusing Russia of attacking a power station in Kharkiv in retaliation for Ukrainian gains on the battlefield. The missile strikes caused widespread blackouts across several regions. Turning now to the extreme weather here in the United States, Southern California was slammed by remnants of Tropical Storm K. Overnight in Lake Hughes, which is north of Los Angeles, more than 20 cars were trapped in a mudslide. Helicopters were dispatched to help rescue about 50 people. There have been no reports of any injuries. And in the NFL, Tom Brady and the Bucks were under the bright lights in Texas, capping off a wild week one. Tampa settled for four field goals on their early drives, but Brady started connecting with Mike Evans in the third. Evans made a falling catch in the end zone for the game's first touchdown. It would be the only one. Bad news for the Cowboys late when Dak Prescott left the game with an injury to his throwing hand. Jerry Jones said Prescott needs surgery and will be out several weeks. Tom Brady is now a perfect 7-0 against the Cowboys. The Bucks leave with a win, 19-3. And some late-game heroics by the Giants getting within one late in Tennessee. Big Blue went for two, and Saquon, Saquon Barkley punched in to take the lead. The Giants stunned the Titans on the road, 21 20. And Dom, uh, those Monday mornings are a little bit more tough now that NFL is back. It, they, they are, and, and, and I watched my Niners go down to Chicago, so it was a wild first week for sure. Francis Rivera, thank you very much for that. Sure thing. Straight ahead on the show, your morning's top trending stories, including an iconic dayside drama making its move from the airwaves to the streaming world and the trouble diehard fans may have to endure to keep up with their favorite soap opera. That story coming up. We'll be right back. Stocks coming off a winning week, looking to hold on to that fresh momentum. Investors gearing up for this week's big read on inflation. Futures right now are higher. A potentially major blow to the American economy taking shape right now. Thousands of rail workers set to walk off the job this week as negotiators race to reach a deal to keep critical goods rolling along. And J.P. Morgan making a fresh push into fintech as it looks to fend off key players in that growing industry. It's Monday, September 12th. You were watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I am Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan on this Monday morning. A quick check on stock futures. We are right near session highs right now with the Dow currently implied higher by just around 181 points. The S&P 500 up by 27 and the Nasdaq up by 95. Again, moving towards those session highs just a little bit below those right now. We've got a news alert now on an announcement by the Biden administration and its efforts to wipe out cancer. President Biden said to make an address later on today on his cancer moonshot initiative. The president will discuss the progress made so far by his cancer cabinet in that effort, as well as new actions for sure. Those steps will include a new agency to drive biomedical innovation and signing an executive order, launching an initiative to ensure that the U.S. makes cutting edge biotechnologies and other innovative processes as well. 
So that's again from the Biden administration. Let's check now on your morning's other top stories. Silvana Hanau is back with those. Silvana. Dom, yeah. So Disney CEO announcing some changes coming for parts of its theme park and streaming platform. Speaking at the company's annual D23 Expo, Bob Chapek announced the recently opened Avengers Campus at the Disneyland's California Adventure will be adding a third attraction. The company later announcing the new feature will focus on the multiverse storyline of the popular Marvel films. Chapek also using the event to tease Disney Plus expanding into the metaverse. The CEO saying the company is looking at ways to make the platform one that blends the physical and digital worlds. Visa, MasterCard, and American Express all announcing they will take new steps to categorize sales at gun shops separately from other purchases. The three payment processors will add a new merchant category for firearm retailers, while big box retailers that sell guns will have a different code. Until now, gun shops were often categorized with a much broader collection of companies. The move is seen as a win for gun control advocates. And J.P. Morgan Chase agreeing to buy payment startup Renovite. The bank says the deal will help speed up its ability to roll out new offerings to merchants. The move will help JPM fight off threats from other fintech firms, including Stripe and Block. The deal marks the latest fintech deal by the bank, buying at least five startups since late 2020, Dom. All right, Silvana Hinao, thank you very much for those. Turning back now to markets and specifically technology. Stocks in the sector looking to keep their rebound going. The Nasdaq snapping its three-week losing streak just last week with it and the Nasdaq 100 both climbing 4%, their best weekly performance, by the way, since late July. Let's bring in now Nancy Tengler, the CEO and Chief Investment Officer at Laffer Tengler Investments. Uh, Nancy, there's been a lot made about this particular bounce in technology, whether it's dead cat, whether it, it can fizzle out like this. But over the last 12-plus years, technology has always led the advance to the upside is this time any different? I don't know, Dom. I hate to I hate to be consensus, but I think there are times when you really want to chase cheap. Uh, you know, some of the the stay at home names that are down 70, 80 percent, and there are times to stick with reliable growth. And we think this is a time not to ch- chase steep cheap, but to stay with reliable growth. And so we like a number of the names in the cloud, uh, cyber, uh, and um, chip space. And and so that's where we're putting our focus. And I do think you'll be rewarded because the growth that came in last quarter from many of those companies was outstanding. So how do you pick them? You mentioned don't chase that value trade, but even within your universe of favorite picks and industries, you have to separate some stocks versus others. So which semiconductor stocks, which cloud stocks, which other type of enterprise business type solution stocks in technology would you go for? And what metrics do you use that are the most important to get there? So, so I'll start with uh, why w- w- the macro environment and how we narrow it down. So RBC recently did a CIO study where 78% of chief information officers had reported that they had increased their IT budgets, but 86% 
uh, are increasing their software budgets uh, as, as a percentage of that, while 50% are, are decreasing their hardware budget. So we want to be focused on software. It's the solution to productivity uh, enhancements, which we think we're going to need with a, a tight labor force. So then we go to, well, where's the spend going? Microsoft, by far, is getting the biggest uh, contribution to spending in the two years that they, that they asked about, which were 2022 and 2025. So you have to assume they're going to get it in between as well. Azure's growing at 38%. Teams is catching Zoom. Uh, those same CIOs said that they were planning uh, to use Teams 67% and 38% were going to use it exclusively. Plus, the stock's down 21% year to date. You're getting an, uh, a 1% yield, but 9.7% growth over the last five years. So when we can get earnings growth and dividend growth, that's nirvana for us. So we think Microsoft belongs in every portfolio. Not a terribly original name, but a workhorse uh, in your portfolio. Right. And then we like cyber. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, it can't just be mega caps, right? Well, n- n- no. Um, I mean, Palo Alto Networks, I, I, you know, it's, it's a large cap stock, but it's not a mega cap stock. That's another name we like in the cyberspace. Um, and and they, they have just been firing on all um, on all engines and and the, the growth they they put in uh, that they generated in last quarter was remarkable over thirty percent billings were up over forty percent and and you have uh, in in various surveys CIOs saying the last thing they're going to cut in their budget is cyber and we know it's it's going to be an ongoing challenge um, for the country and the government so. Uh, and, and corporate businesses. So we, we've liked that name for a long time. It's up 50% year over year. It's not cheap. I would wait for pullbacks, um, but it's a member of our 12 best ideas portfolio along with Microsoft. All right. So Microsoft and Palo Alto Networks, uh, I, we've just got a few moments, Nancy, left here. What do you think? You, you said you're not chasing that value trade. So does that mean that energy is something you, you should just stay away from right now? No, we're, we're over. I was talking about um, cheap in tech. We're overweight energy and have been. We're almost twice the um, the S and P weighting, which is not a lot, but um, still is a bet on our part. We we have been long the group for a while. We think you get one, you know, you get a little bit more time rising uh, energy costs again in Q4, uh, and then we may start taking some off the table. All right, Nancy Tangler, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Coming up on the show, the race to keep freight rail workers on the job, the latest on where talks stand, and the costly blow a strike could blow to the American economy. But first, as we have to break some of your top trending stories, baseball great Derek Jeter venturing into the booming business of collectible cards. Jeter launching a venture capital-backed platform for sports card collectors to grade, buy, and sell their cards both online and in person. Europe's energy crisis potentially dimming the lights on Paris's Eiffel Tower. City leaders are expected to propose this week the monument should go dark an hour earlier than usual amid spiking electricity prices. And some days of our lives, fans, learning on younger relatives, leaning on younger relatives to help them watch the program as it shifts to streaming networks. The Wall Street Journal highlighting how the programs move from NBC to the Peacock Network, both owned by This network's, of course, parent company Comcast has resulted in children and grandchildren helping their older loved ones, unfamiliar with streaming, set up their accounts so they don't miss an episode of that soap opera. Or what exchange returns after this? Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange, a developing story around this country's supply chain set to face its latest test. 
thanks to a potential major strike by freight railroad workers. And the clock is ticking as both sides have until Friday to reach a deal before union members walk off the job. A recent report suggests a possible strike could cost the American economy $2 billion every single day. CNBC's senior editor, Lorianne Loraco, joins us now with the very latest on where negotiations stand. Lorianne. Uh, good morning, Dom. So far, 10 out of 12 labor unions have agreed to tentative contracts, but the two largest unions, with re which represent half of all workers, the Engineers Union and the Smart Transportation Division, have not yet come to an agreement. A labor spokesman told me last night a contract will not be ratified unless there are quality of life improvements included in the steel. Work schedules and attendance policies must also be addressed so workers can take sick days and vacation time without fear of termination. A strike will idle 7,000 freight trains that move daily, which will require an additional 460,000 trucks to fill that void. In a letter to Congress, the American Trucking Association says the trucking industry does not have enough equipment or drivers to fill that gap. Around 40 percent of the nation's long distance trade is moved by rail. Dom. So, so Lorianne, what what have they what have the railroads, the companies themselves told you about how these negotiations are going and whether or not they feel as though that progress can be made? Well, so far, they've remained numb in terms of the, the talks as it relates to those labor negotiations of personal time. But they did tell me that the railroads are starting today to follow federal guidelines to begin securing shipments of ha hazardous cargo so it's not left unattended in the event of a strike. The Engineers Union and the Smart Transportation Division tell me the measure is unnecessary, calling it corporate extortion. Quote, the railroads are using shippers, consumers and the supply chain as pawns in an effort to get unions to cave into their demands. Congress must not cave into what can only be described as corporate terrorism. In an email, a spokesperson for the railroads explained that precautionary measures are indeed necessary. They tell me, quote, with less than a week away from, from potential service disruption, carriers are obligated to take appropriate action to prepare. This includes making plans for handling hazmat shipments and notification to shippers is an essential part to that contingency plan. Dom. All right. Lori and Loraco, thank you very much for that big story there on the rails. For more on this story, just head over to CNBC.com. More details there. As we head out to break, a reminder, be sure to sign up for the most powerful investment event of the year. It's CNBC's Delivering Alpha. It returns on September 28th with economic leaders, policymakers, and the world's best investors sharing their expert insights. Just scan the QR code that you see on your screen or go over to DeliveringAlpha.com to register for this big event. We'll be right back after this. As we kick off a new trading week, let's dive into the market's recent performance, starting with the S&P 500, which is now above halfway between where the highs were that we saw just the last couple of months and the lows we saw back in June. So where we are right here, a pretty decent move higher off the lows. Now, with regard to what's been causing that over the last month, it has been, by the way, the only positive sector in the entire S&P 500, and that's energy, believe it or not, even with the slide in oil prices Communication services is down 7%, and so is technology down 8%, the two worst-performing sectors. And then take a look at that juxtaposition with regard to stocks. Apple and Microsoft, the two biggest stocks in the S&P 500 and NASDAQ 100, both underperforming dramatically. 
ExxonMobil. So despite those lower energy prices, it still appears as though the energy sector is in vogue with investors. Now let's bring in Zachary Hill, head of portfolio management over at Horizon Investments. If you take a look at this overall, Zachary, this is a situation where large cap technology has fallen way out of favor. Interest rates are part of that story. Is this one of those places that should be on investors' shopping lists because of that big discount to where it has been? Yeah, so that's a great point. I mean, I think you need to start looking at this area. Um, we've been underweight, you know, the top of the market and the kind of the mega, ta- mega cap tech area, um, you know, almost all year and overweight energy. And we still like that position. But as you start to get a little bit closer, you know, there's a lot of talk about recession and things like that. We're not in that camp, but we are certainly getting longer in the cycle. And so we do think it makes sense to start looking at some of the higher quality names within that universe and staying away from that really speculative uh, growth area that uh, you know, really outperformed over the last two years. Zachary, I mean, large cap, mega cap technology has been viewed at several points over the last decade plus as a quote unquote safe haven trade because it's been insulated to some of the bigger downturns in the economy that could be expected. What has changed? What, what has made it so the technology is so much less attractive now? Well, quite frankly, the reason it was a safe haven trade is the Fed was part and parcel concerned about growth. And so if you had any sort of hiccup in the growth outlook, they would immediately start uh, not necessarily lowering rates, but kind of guiding policy more in your favor. And, and for a long duration asset, uh, that was very beneficial. The situation as we see it today is the exact opposite. The only thing the Fed cares about is inflation. We take them on their word at that. Um, and so for assets that are more sensitive to discount rate, mega cap tech is absolutely one of them. Uh, that's just as a difficult kind of macro headwind that we have not seen uh, really since you know, 2008. So it's taking a long time for investors to, uh, to kind of internalize that change. Do you think, Zachary, that, that anything that happens with the inflation data out this week changes the Fed calculus for 75 bips later on this month? Well, you know, the market's going to move around and speculate kind of on peak inflation. And we've been doing that, quite frankly, since uh, March or so of this year. But, you know, as we see it, uh, we, we believe the Fed on this as well. And we think that we need to see not just one or two prints uh, that are favorable, but a whole string of them. Uh, and so we're looking at the top line number, which is likely going to slow because of gasoline prices have been falling you know, really inexorably for the last three months. Um, but the core numbers are still elevated. And some of the other kind of more trend inflation numbers are also still elevated and not at all compatible with 2% inflation. And so we think we need to see at least three months of improvement to really say that we're past that peak inflation. And one bad number in that time will reset that clock. All right. No reset there. Zachary Hill Horizon. Thank you very much. We appreciate it, sir. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Markets right now are indicated higher. The Dow is implied higher by roughly 175, 160 points now. Squawk Box comes up next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.